Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails, the second Anglo-Dutch War episode 2. Last time we looked at the construction of the peace between France and Spain and the maturation of Louis XIV with his marriage to the daughter of the King of Spain. This time we change tack and look at the exploits of Louis's other cousin, Charles II, a man who had experienced his fair share of heartache and disappointment only to be in the right place at the right time when calls for a restoration of his family became louder and louder. As a story, it is hard to find an equal, but as we'll soon discover, Charles's restoration was merely one phase in the incredible series of events that made up the latter 17th century. So let's begin. I will now take you to the year 1660, where a formerly deposed young king stares longingly towards the place that he had once called home. We hope that we have made right Christian use of our affliction, and that the observations and experience we have had in other countries hath been such that we, and we all hope for our subjects, shall be better for what we have seen and suffered. Charles II, in a letter to the Speaker of the House of Commons, the 6th of April, 1660. He was 29 years old abnormally tall for his time, with dark, curly hair and thick, strong eyebrows. His brown eyes complemented the picture, while a hint of a moustache added a level of mischief to his hard cheekbones, strong jawline and long nose. Generally, his mouth had the ability to capture the mood, depending merely on its position. He could curl his lips in amusement, purse it in thought or tighten it in frustration, but today his entire expression seemed unusually neutral. He wasn't focused on himself, he was instead focusing his gaze purely on what lay in front of him. A spring breeze reminded him that he was soon to depart this land for pastures new. New, but 
not quite new. He had been here before, back when his family's cause was lost and he was at his lowest ebb, but all that had changed. Behind him was the past, the wintry exile on the continent, the reluctant generosity of his relatives, the humiliation in seeing his enemies succeed. Ahead of him was a new beginning, the fulfilment of his life's work and ambition. Above all, it was his home, and in a few days he would be travelling there. Here it was on a ship, renamed the Royal Charles, where it had once been called the Naseby, that the heir to the throne of England, Scotland and Ireland stood. The British Isles, for so long a commonwealth, now beckoned their king to return. Charles II, of the House of Stuart, inhaled deeply before going below deck once more. They would be departing for Dover soon. The Royal Charles was one amongst many vessels that had once trumpeted the Republican cause, but had since been transformed to reflect the new ethos of the British Isles. As they clustered together on this mild evening of the 23rd of May, 1660, Charles and his brother James, the Duke of York, began the process of renaming all the ships that would accompany them home. The Richard, named after Oliver Cromwell's son of the same name, became the James, while the Dunbar, denoting a famous parliamentarian victory, was renamed the Henry after the younger brother of Charles II and James. The Speaker, resembling the powerful voice of the House of Commons, became the Mary after Charles's sister, the Princess of Orange. The Lambert became Henrietta after Charles's mother and also youngest sister of the same name. The Winsley became the Happy Return, the Bradford became the Success, the Cheriton became the Speedwell, and these were accompanied by the London and the Swifter. It was quite the flotilla, where not only the ships but the passengers on them told a fascinating story of disappointment, familial ties and eventual triumph. The present and future kings of the British Isles boarded the flotilla, while relics from the past were also present. Elizabeth of Bohemia, as she was known, led the deputation of women on board. She was the aunt of Charles II and her story was one that had profoundly shaped the last 40-plus years of European warfare. In 1618, our narrative of the Thirty Years' War saw her late husband, Frederick V of the Palatinate, accept the crown of Bohemia in a move that sparked off a series of counter-moves, which then resulted in the Thirty Years' War. Elizabeth may have been near the end of her life by this point, but it would be her offspring that would have the last laugh. Her marriage to Frederick V had been most productive. Of their eleven children, it was perhaps Sophie of Hanover that would be the most well-known. As Sophie's descendants would go on to provide the three Georges that ended up leading Britain's monarchy throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. The incredible origins and legacy that the individuals boarding the flotilla would possess did not end with Elizabeth's children, though. Another seemingly less important individual was a ten-year-old boy. He was the son of Mary, sister of Charles II, and of William II, Stadtholder of Holland before his sudden death in 1650. Since his father's death, Holland had sought to reduce the power of the House of Orange, and instead appointed wealthy magnates to advance its economic position. By 1660 this meant that the Netherlands was effectively run by a series of merchant cliques, and that the House of Orange was unable to get a foothold 
in its old province of Holland. The status of his homeland meant that this young boy was passed from royal relative to relative, as his mother Mary endured regular arguments over whether the Dutch or the English should have possession of this young Prince of Orange. Little seemed to be expected of this half-Dutch, half-English child, whose upbringing and fractured homeland seemed to suggest a hampered development. One wonders if Charles II had known that this William III would one day be King of England, Scotland and Ireland, and hold the Netherlands in a personal union with London. Had he known this, would he have treated him differently? At the same time, one wonders if Charles's brother James knew what fate had planned for him, that William III would invade Britain and topple James's unpopular reign in the Glorious Revolution of 1688. Would James have treated him differently too? As it was, neither Charles nor James reckoned for what their nephew would become, and at this stage in his life William can't have imagined all that he was destined for, or that his greatest nemesis was not in any of these boats, but within this country, and just about to finalise the details for his own marriage, Louis XIV of France. So, as you can see, as I've said before, this whole era is a seriously strong candidate for some kind of Netflix series at the very least, aside from Versailles. I really love character development, to see individuals grow and mature and then go on to make critical decisions. These are the spectacles that make series like Game of Thrones so entertaining in my view, and as we'll see in the near future, history is full of incredible examples of this. Who could have known that the pre-adolescent boy with mixed parentage or the soon-to-be-married French king with a rocky start would go on to so define European politics in their fascinating rivalry, to the point that Louis would regularly refer to William III as my mortal enemy. It is a story we have inevitably been building towards since the Thirty Years' War special began, because the 17th century is impossible to tell as a story without their contingent contributions. It is a story with many layers, so many implications for the future of Europe, and so much going on all across it, that we can often be in danger of getting overwhelmed. That's why I felt it was only right to begin in the moments that set the rest of the century into motion, such as the monumental act of Charles II, who after so many years of exile, had been welcomed home. It had been a bittersweet, but also triumphant journey for Charles. Charles knew that the boats were not merely the means by which he was returning home, but the culmination of a story that began in 1642, when civil war across the British Isles erupted in force for the first time, and the then 12-year-old Charles saw his world fall apart. The following years saw a series of terrible disappointments stack up, as the Battle of Naseby in June 1645 saw the parliamentarians decisively defeat the royalist cause, and the tide continued to turn against the royalists. This turning tide meant that Charles I sought to get his children to safety, and thus the young Charles II and his siblings' lives were formed by the experiences of being hurriedly crammed onto boats destined for the continent. In February 1642, Charles I packed off his wife, Henrietta Maria, and young daughter, Mary, the same Mary who would marry William II and become the mother of William III. He followed their ship along the coast of Dover, waving to their ship from his horse until it was out of sight. 
At 17, Charles II followed his siblings and mother into exile in 1647, never to see his father again. For months, his father had urged him to leave the country, and he finally listened, fleeing to the Scilly Isles and then to France. In April 1648, as the Peace of Westphalia was being constructed, James also followed his brother from England, but stayed in the household of his sister Mary and her Dutch husband William II in the Netherlands. By the end of 1648, Charles II was confronted with strong rumours, then confirmed, that the parliamentarians were soon to try his father as a common criminal. Charles the Younger was, of course, outraged, and he petitioned the courts of Europe to prevent this grisly eventuality from going ahead, but in vain. On the 30th of January 1649, Charles I was executed, and for the rump parliament there could be no going back. On the 5th of February, his eldest son was informed of the news by his reluctant chaplain. Charles wept furiously and vowed revenge, sitting in silence for the rest of the night, as he contemplated all that had befallen his family, and how he would turn such circumstances around. It would not be an easy task. Various European powers had accepted Cromwell's authority, and limply protested at the very most impractical terms, but it was largely business as usual in the money-making minds of many Europeans. Worse for Charles was the news in 1650 to the effect that an aggressive campaigner and supporter of the Stuart cause, William II of Orange, had suddenly died. To Charles it must have seemed as though he was all alone. His allies were gone, his enemies were numerous, and nobody seemed to care enough about his plight to do anything to practically help him. As the leader of the House of Stuart, he had a responsibility to look after his family. But how? For the next decade, Charles spent an agonising length of time hopping to different houses, as the tides of war between various states meant that he was or wasn't welcome in certain countries. He took comfort from many royal exiles, whose sons now led once distinguished families, being reduced to the edge of poverty as their lands back home were divided up to settle Parliament debts. He could not stay away from intrigues for long, as in 1650 Scotland seemed to offer the best hope for Charles of wresting his kingdom back from his enemies. Charles was forced to promise them freedom of worship and to uphold the Presbyterian faith as his own, promises made under pressure, but the Scottish Kirk needed a symbol to fight against the English with, and Charles needed the Scots, so he went along with it. The humiliation of being paraded around as a de facto prisoner of the Scots didn't last, though, as Cromwell invaded and defeated the Scots at the Battle of Dunbar on September 1650. Following this, Charles remained in Scotland, seeing the Scots as his best hope despite what had occurred, and he was proclaimed King of Scotland on the 1st of January 1651. Charles became increasingly deflated, though, with his Scottish options, and when it was learned that England was to invade again, Charles sought to preempt this, and marched south to the border with an army of 12,000 men. He hoped to inspire the royalist citizens that still remained, and allowed himself to believe that they would rise up against the republican regime. But the people were tired of war. They were too exhausted and despondent themselves to muster any kind of meaningful response. As Charles's army marched 
deeper into English territory. A trap was set and sprung at the Battle of Worcester in September 1651. It was here that the Scottish option truly vanished. Cromwell's forces caught up with the Scots and pursued them through the narrow streets and into the shallow bogs, cutting down any remnants of Scottish soldiery in the process. Though the courage and bravery of Charles was never questioned, as heir to the House of Stuart, he had to make good his escape, or else the royalist cause would be truly lost. Thus, history was given one of the most incredible tales of the era, that of Charles's winding escape following the Battle of Worcester, to his eventual arrival on the continent. During these experiences, he disguised himself as a common man, an act made more difficult by his unusually tall frame. Though a £1,000 bounty was placed upon his head, Charles consistently relied upon the kindness of mostly Catholic strangers, who had been estranged themselves from the extremist rhetoric of the rump parliament's republican regime. As he travelled through rough roads and donned greasy, unbecoming clothes, Charles experienced both great generosity and severe hardship. What he took with him, as he sought to commandeer a vessel that would take him to the continent, was that he could be loved by his people, and that many would do anything for their king, even put their lives in serious danger. More people died trying to help Charles than actually made good their escape, but Charles was able to depend upon his royalist spy network to stay afloat and make it to safety. Charles's escape across the country later became immortalised in Restoration literature. It was a tale Charles had been sitting on for some time, but he hadn't told it before 1651 to a wider audience, lest he incriminate those that had aided him in his hour of need, and aid him they did. Historian Jenny Uglo, in her book A Gambling Man, Charles II and the Restoration, notes that Charles would have looked at his tumultuous experiences of escape with a degree of fondness, since, as Uglo puts it, The story was a reminder to himself and others of what he could achieve. He had been cool and quick-thinking in sudden danger. He had enjoyed the variety, the disguise, the challenges, the fast pace. He had been courteous, never rattled, getting on easily with men and women he would not normally meet, from country matrons to soldiers, merchants and servants. Perhaps, too, he returned to these days so often because the help of the common people had given him a sense that he was loved, something he rarely felt in the flattery of the court. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The question of why citizens would help Charles when such a large bounty was on his head and a gruesome death awaited them if they were discovered reveals the level of loyalty to the old regime that did exist despite the brutal efficiency of the rump and then Cromwell's Commonwealth revolutions. The veins of sympathy for the old ways remained in place even as Cromwell grew in power and influence, eventually being offered the throne of Britain in 1656 only to turn it down, since he knew how his all-powerful army, who really held the cards, would have reacted. The true opportunity for Charles came with the death of Oliver Cromwell, and his deathbed will that his son, Richard, would succeed him, in a process strikingly similar to the hereditary institution of monarchy that Cromwell had just fought for over a decade to abolish. More than perhaps anything else, it was this timely death of Cromwell and the succession of his son, who enjoyed none of the personal charisma or tenacity, let alone the critical support base, which opened the door to an alternative system of government. If Britain was destined to copy the hereditary monarchy system and have a king in all but name, it may as well appoint one with the proper credentials. The 29-year-old Charles II was still memorable enough to those that had heard of the then 19-year-old coming to win back his father's throne in 1650-51 to seem to be an acceptable candidate. Even so, though, it was still a remarkable transformation for a state to go from revolutionarily opposed to the furthering of monarchy to feverishly wanting the king's descendants back in power. The reason why is one which many historians have long since grappled with. How do we explain such a seismic shift in the psychology of the country? A historically underrated reason is that the British citizen had come to realise that government of the people actually meant government of the army. The new model army possessed the real power in the state, not the House of Commons. To maintain this power, the country had to pay for the soldiers with unpopular taxes. Britain wasn't used to having a standing army, but this standing army was necessary to keep a hold on the country and maintain the power of the generals, like Cromwell, Fairfax, etc., who had pushed the revolution through in the first place. On top of the factor of the consistently unpopular army existing in the background, the Commonwealth itself was regularly plunged into different wars with the Spanish and the Dutch, and an undeclared war with the French. The army became more important and powerful in these wars, but the fact remained that this same army was dominated by sectarian and religious fundamentalists on a scale that did not reflect the beliefs or enthusiasms of the common people, who they were supposed to protect. Consistent war, religious fundamentalism, standing armies and military despotism was bad enough, 
but this was coupled with now more infamous lifestyle changes implemented by the Commonwealth. The closure of theatres and brothels, the banning of festivals like Christmas, and the now mandatory status of church attendance. To these people, a regime change was what was needed. Laws of conformity had to be relaxed, the army had to be disbanded, trade had to be revitalised, the countryside had to be replenished. The Commonwealth experiment had left the British Isles £2 million in debt by the time Richard Cromwell elected to resign. As monumental change was underway in the British Isles, a despondent Charles II in October 1659 had visited the Franco-Spanish meeting on the border that had aimed at bringing peace between both countries with the hope of making one last bid to both deputations to support his aim to the British throne amid such a chaotic time. Both deputations were reportedly impressed with his heirs, but they were too distracted and cynical to invest any more time in the seemingly hopeless Stuart cause. Then came the news only weeks later of Richard Cromwell's resignation and the collapse of Britain into chaos. The rump parliament had been restored by the army in the months before October 1659, but they repeatedly failed to put up the funds necessary to pay the soldiers. With the Parliament apparently needing a reminder of who really ran the place around here, General Lambert, a Civil War veteran who had been reappointed to lead the new model army earlier that year, marched to Westminster and abruptly dismissed the rump. With the decision-making body of the country absent and no Lord Protector to control these decisions either, Lambert sought to keep a handle on things by creating a committee of public safety and filling it with some retired generals and friends. But by and large, public order in Britain began to break down the moment the rump was dismissed. Taxes went uncollected, harvests were unreaped and the law itself was thrown to the wind as banditry became a major problem again for the first time in centuries. Some former MPs of the rump tried to re-establish themselves and ordered that Lambert dismantle this army and maintain the law of the land by deferring to Parliament. But Lambert refused, and a strange standoff ensued. As the ineffectual Lambert tried to mobilise public support to make his situation better, the common people abandoned the cause he stood for in droves, as news arrived of another Civil War veteran arriving from Scotland. This was the General George Monk, the supreme commander of the army in Scotland an owner of the largest army in the British Isles, and he had been massing on the border for weeks as he waited to see which way the winds were blowing. Now he made his move. Invading the country towards London, crossing the English border on New Year's Day 1660, Monk marched with demands for proper pay for his soldiers, but this was not merely business as usual. Before long, opponents of the rump and of Lambert in equal measure began to flock to General Monk, petitioning him to restore by assembling what they called a full and free parliament. That is, a parliament of the kind that used to exist before it had been purged of moderates and replaced by the rump. This newly imagined parliament would assemble itself, its supporters believed, and disavow any of the sentiments harboured by the old rump or of Lambert's radical soldiers. It would be given military power bases, the idea further went, by Monk's considerable army, which would ensure a smooth transition from rump parliament to free parliament. To General Monk, these proposals meant two key things. 
First, that he had suddenly come to accrue a lot of power simply by virtue of being at the right place, with a large army at the right time. And second, that if the free parliament, as it was described, was brought into existence, its hundreds of beleaguered and moderate MPs would surely vote overwhelmingly for a return of the old order, that is, for a return of the monarchy and the exiled Charles II. The stakes grew, as more ex-generals of the Civil War weighed in on the decision that Monk was due to make, by throwing their lot in with him. Romantic ideas about the monarchy began to grow, and the pamphlet sector predictably exploded, as no government existed to suppress the previously outlawed views. A power vacuum had clearly emerged, and as it unfolded in real time, Snippets of it filtered to the continent, where Charles II tried not to believe too heavily in the eventuality of his restoration. He had endured crushing disappointments before, but this time seemed to be different. There wasn't a strong enough figure or a popular enough one in place to really get the country back on track. Nor did there seem to be any appetite within the common people to see the regime of Puritanism continue as it had. Unwilling to let the process develop naturally, General Monk elected to force events, marching on London to bring the situation to a conclusion one way or the other. Only a few days before his arrival on the 3rd of February 1660, the always colourful gentleman, Samuel Pepys, noted that boys do now cry, kiss my parliament, instead of kiss my arse, so great a general contempt is the rump come to among all men, good and bad. This reflected the reality on the ground more accurately than Pepys may have realised, and by this point, Monk seemed willing to force the destiny of the three kingdoms, rather than simply acquire the pay for his troops. On the 11th of February, Monk forced the rump to admit the old moderate MPs into the commons from where they had once been purged, and by doing so he opened the way for fair elections, and ensured a restoration Eager, excited and nostalgic citizens, merchants and public officials got in on the festivities as church bells pealed, bonfires blazed and citizens sang for a return of the king. As this went on in London and across the country, the previously ignored Charles was suddenly bombarded with letters, petitions and deputations of men, spies and gentlemen seeking either his help, his favour or his opinion on events. Charles, of course, wanted back in, but he had to see what Monk would do. Though elections had been called and the rump pacified by the weight of royalist moderates, nothing stopped them from closing this very system with his soldiers and reverting back to the rump at a moment's notice. Parliament had been shut down by sheer force all too often in the past for Charles to pin all his hopes upon it, while he had also seen the tides flow against him, as often as they seemed to flow for his desires. This time, though, things were indeed different. Through an intermediary, Charles was about to send the following letter to General Monk, and a move which Charles hoped would either put him out of his misery or help him realise his dreams. He wrote the following to General Monk. You cannot but believe that I know too well the power you have to do me good or harm, not to desire you should be my friend. And whatever you have heard to the contrary, you will find false, as if you had been told that I have white hair and I'm crooked. However, I cannot but say that I will take all the way I can to let the world see, and you and yours find, 
that I have an entire trust in you, and as much kindness for you as can be experienced by your affectionate friend, Charles. Monk hesitated before accepting the letter, since it would surely show his hand if he answered Charles in the affirmative. Eventually the well-positioned general wrote to their intermediary, who was in fact his cousin, and claimed that he had always been faithful to the king at heart, and never had a chance to show his faithfulness in the past for fear of death. Monk never demanded any limitations on royal power in this reply, instead he begged Charles to solve the problems that so dogged Britain. Religious sectarianism, soldiers' pay, a general indemnity, and the dividing of estates seized by the Commonwealth. Under Monk's advice, Charles then determined to leave the Spanish Netherlands and settle instead in Breda as he planned his journey home, since, as Britain's destined head of state, he was putting himself at risk by lodging in a country in which Britain was technically at war. The reply stirred a passion to return in Charles, since it was perhaps the first acknowledgement of his kingly importance since his exile began. As one of the first acts as the de facto king, Charles issued the Declaration of Breda on the 5th of April 1660, which allowed for a general pardoning of the vast majority of those that had partaken in the Civil War, with the sole exception of the direct regicides. Charles also proclaimed a liberty to tender consciences unless said religion endangered the state, and of course payment of the soldiers' arrears of pay. Perhaps as an indication of his wiles, Charles also claimed within this declaration that the more troubling aspect in need of resolving, that of the landed estates and their confiscation, as well as the necessary compensation and punishments, etc., would be carried out by a committee controlled by Parliament. The day after Charles wrote a letter to the Speaker of the House of Commons, which we quoted in our opening, and among other things appealed to the MPs as wise and dispassionate men and good patriots, who recognised that the liberties of both King and Parliament were best preserved by preserving the other. The Speaker sat on this letter for the moment, as Parliament was again dissolved on the 17th of March, 1660, and a new one elected again, this time packed to the rafters with royalists and the sons of ostracised gentry, with scores to settle and lands to take back. On the 1st of May 1660, the King's letter to the Speaker was read out in the Commons, and only minutes after, a resolution calling for the reinstatement of Charles II and the House of Stuart across the British Isles was approved. Over the months of March and April, the trickle of intriguers and interested citizens petitioning Charles became a flood, as everyone seemed to want to favour or remind the King of their family's loyalty. The gifts of cash these citizens brought enabled Charles to shower his true followers with gifts and raise spirits to jubilant levels before the big return. On the 14th of May he left his Dutch base at Breda and sailed downriver past major Dutch towns and small villages, all of whom seemed to celebrate the return of the king to his rightful home. It was here that Charles was told emphatically that Parliament had voted for his return and reinstatement, and his followers insisted that he waste no time. Charles didn't need to be told, he had waited 12 years to succeed his late father, the journey through to Delft whereupon he and his entourage piled into over 70 coaches and travelled on the cobbled streets to The Hague, could not have gone fast enough. By the 18th of May he was securely moored in The Hague's harbour port of Scheveningen, 
and then had to grind his teeth in impatience as harsh storms prevented the party from sailing the distance to Dover. In the meantime, he was kept busy by regular deputations, such as commissioners from the House of Lords and Commons, and representations from Spain and France, who through feasts in his honour, where once they had shunned his hopeless family. The Dutch tried to outdo them all with a great feast served on gold plate, and a gallery of artworks which had to be carefully stored away across two different ships, as a coronation present. Charles may have gasped at the opulence and generosity, which he had only once imagined in his wildest dreams, but more was to come before he set sail. On the 20th of May 1660, the aforementioned deputation from the House of Lords presented Charles with a note of credit of £50,000, with ten for his brother and even five for his younger brother, Henry. These were important gestures of a society trying to reassert their old influence with the king that they had once depended upon, and what sealed the deal was a trunk of 10,000 gold coins, a rare sight indeed, in the era of want and devastation that paper notes of credit seemed to complement. Charles reportedly called in his family to witness this trunk of brimming gold, and suddenly realised how comparatively low-key his own garments and aura were. These were happily compensated for by Charles's naturally affable personality, and by his triumphant sense of joy, which undoubtedly would have shone through any material inefficiencies. As the days passed and the storms threatened to leave, Charles could imagine a return home at last. What would his people do? How would they react? How would the monarchy's power reflect all that it had been through? Would it be an easy transition, a smooth one or a rough one, and could he trust his people to switch so willingly to the new regime? All of these, as well as many others, were questions Charles mulled over, as his ship rested gently on the now calm Dutch seas. As he stared out in the direction of Dover, on this, the 23rd of May, 1660, a call from behind him was heard. The storms had indeed cleared. He and his court would sail for Dover the next day. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.